Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings from Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. China's political and economic growth in the past three decades has been rapid and impressive, and central to this transformation has been the role of the Chinese Communist Party. It controls the government, courts, media, and military, and its decisions have a global impact. Here to discuss the deeply secretive power is Richard McGregor, a journalist with extensive experience across China, working for The Australian and The Financial Times. He's also the author of The Party, The Secret World of Chinese Communist Rulers. Thank you for joining me, Richard. Thank you. So could you give me a bit of an introduction to the Chinese Communist Party? And just so people know, if we say CCP, that's what we mean, Chinese Communist Party. Uh, How extensive is it and how much control does it have in China? Well, I think people in many respects, maybe not now, but certainly when I wrote my book a few years back, had come to think of China as uh, like a capitalist country where the Communist Party had sort of faded into the background and was sort of like the Rotary Club or some sort of fuddy-duddy sort of but not so relevant organisation, whereas in fact China's genius, if that's what you want to call it, is to have a genuine Communist Party, that is a Leninist Party, in other words a secretive organisation that sits above the government uh, and controls everything political and even non-political, controls the courts, the media, the cabinet, the government, all controlled by the Communist Party, mainly in an opaque, secretive fashion. In other words, it's like the Leninist superstate in a way that Lenin himself could never have imagined. Mm. And that has not only been preserved since China went capitalist in 1979, it's been enhanced. And so the whole point of writing a book about the Communist Party is to just underline what a different system the Chinese system is and how different it is from how most people look at it from the outside. The way that you're referring it to there seems to be a a sort of a man-behind-the-curtain scenario almost. Well, it's a man-behind-the-curtain, but it's a man with genuine power. It's not like The Wizard of Oz where you pull back the curtain and you see somebody sort of pulling a few levers rather hopelessly. Mm. This is a remarkably integrated, large, intact organisation. For example, the Chinese Communist Party has about 88 million members one in 12 adults in China. And so that means they cover the shop. They cover it not just at the central government level, every level of government in China, and there are five. It goes from the centre, the provinces, the cities, uh, the townships and the villages, all have parallel structures under the Communist Party, which control the government, they control personnel, they control the military, they control the police, they control the courts, the media. And so it's a massive system for a massive country which has somehow remained intact after sort of 40 years of robber baron capitalism. Mm. Did you say one in 12? Yes, one in 12 adults. It's the same as the Soviet Union. One in 12 adults in China are members of the Communist Party. So how does one become a member? It isn't just simply fill out an application form. And and what does membership entail? Well, that's a good point, actually. It's a a mass organisation which styles itself as an elite So they actually go around to the best universities, the best high schools. This is at the elite level, Mm. and you are invited to apply to join. So you probably need somebody to recommend you, like an exclusive club, get a couple of recommendations. Then you have to write an essay saying why you want to be a good member of the Communist Party. There's a sort of process to go through. Yeah. Now, the truth is that many people look up on the internet and find the essay that people have used and do a cut-and-paste job. But the party makes you go through a process 
to actually get in. And of course, once you're in, it doesn't end there. If you're an official, you go for education and re-education. And if, for example, at the moment we're approaching the end of year 2017 Communist Party Congress once every five years, mm. everybody in universities, think tanks, ministries have to go to study sessions, which often last two days to study Marxism, to study the latest version of Communist Party catechism and policy and the like. So it's a, it's an endless process. And also, I suppose, if you want a, a decent job with a decent position, you will need to be a Communist Party member, mostly, more or less. Totally. In the government? Yeah. Yes. In big state companies? Yes. Almost without exception, uh, you have to be a party member. The area where you didn't used to have to be a party member was, of course, in the private sector. Mm. But even these days, the Communist Party likes to see party cells, party committees in big private sector companies. Let me give you an example. Perhaps the best privately owned Chinese company, the best known around the world is Alibaba, mm. you know, the online sales platform. They have a party committee. So the party likes to be everywhere. The cardinal rule of the Communist Party in China is that there should be no independent centers of power. Yeah. And that includes the private sector. So is the Communist and Communist Party still relevant then? Yes and no. It sounds like a bit of a vestige. It's relevant in as much as it's an ideology of power. And in that respect, the party has the sole monopoly on power. It's structured as such, and so and that's very much part of the way that Lenin, under the Soviet Union, built the system. The Chinese have perfected it. But obviously, are the Chinese Communist Party's economic policies communist in the traditional sense? No. Mm. They've evolved rapidly. They have kept the core of the economy, the commanding heights. You know, big state companies, they're owned by the state. The chief executives are all appointed by the party. Um, but the Chinese economy is a mixed economy these days. About 60-70% of output is private. Mm. So it's not communist in that respect. Yeah, okay, okay. So how far does the influence extend outside China then? China's the major trade partner for many, many countries in the world. And that must be useful for the Chinese Communist Party to be able to push their influence through in various ways. There's a number of agendas. One of them is parties' policies. Tibet, for example. Taiwan. So sovereignty. Sovereignty issues, which are core issues for the ruling Communist Party. Certainly they have a, a role in enforcing that globally, and they've done it with great success, I would say. A very few countries don't recognize one China these days, which incorporates Taiwan. And all countries, including very powerful ones in the West, are very disciplined in how they relate to and um, mix with the Dalai Lama on Tibet, to give you two examples. Mm. So certainly that's a core mission of uh, China overseas to see that such issues of sovereignty are reflected in other countries. But surely uh, being such a massive trade partner for many countries in the world gives it muscle. Yes. China's had a massive role in the global economy now for 10, 15 years. The One Belt, One Road initiative which is about really integrating the uh, Eurasian hinterland behind China all the way to Europe into the Chinese economy very broadly. One belt, one road. One belt is through Eurasia. One road, paradoxically, is actually through the ocean around Asia. That has a number of aims. 
which in, in some respects relate to the party and its political imperatives. For example, it's not just about investing in Eurasia. It's not just about investing in Kazakhstan and Pakistan and places like that. It's also aligning them economically with China, mm. aligning their economic standards with China, aligning their telecommunication standards with China. And so it's not just about an economic opportunity for China, it's also about extending Chinese surveillance practices and surveillance standards way into their hinterland. It's a multi-purpose sort of initiative. What about soft power? Is that something that countries should be concerned about? Australia's quite concerned about it at the moment. And uh, what is the Chinese Communist Party trying to achieve by pushing a soft power approach? Well, my view is that China has no soft power. Chinese soft power is all hard power, even though it appears like soft power. So what do people mean when they say soft power? Is well, soft power, soft power is the power of persuasion. And that, I think, is China's great failing. It doesn't persuade people. It coerces people, even if it does it softly in some respects. It still doesn't make it soft power. So yeah, it speak softly, carry a big stick. That's right. Seek, or you know, often in the case, speak uh, loudly and carry a big stick as well. <laughs> China has... A certain soft power by way of example for developing countries about how you can develop your economy. You know, China has great experience and success as that. But as far as persuading people soft power about emulating the Chinese system, I don't think China is effective in that respect. And their ability to export their model, I think, is mainly hard power. It's through loans. It's through cash grants. Mm. Uh, it's through sending their workers to build something in their country and the like. It's not soft power. Uh, you know, Chinese culture and the Chinese language obviously has a role, but that would always be the case. But China has no Hollywood, which people sort of revel in. And the world doesn't want to go and live in China and the like and copy the system of government and all that sort of stuff. Mm. You know, it's not a soft power. It's hard power. China is highly influential, but mainly not through persuasion. Do you think that there's deliberate efforts, though, to, to push certain agendas? So uh, Chinese investment in, say, an Australian business or an Australian firm or in a research centre or even political donations, do you think that there is a deliberate agenda to push certain perspectives or to achieve some sort of end from the party? Uh, yes, I think there is, yes. It's not always as crude as it can look from the outside. For example, in the Australian case recently, we've seen you know there's political donations, there's donations to universities and the like, there's relationship building uh, with politicians, and most importantly, there's relationship building or the pushing of agendas through Australia's very large Chinese community mm. uh, who often communicate in Chinese, be it through the traditional newspapers or through social media platforms like WeChat and the like. And I think in that respect, the Communist Party sees those communities as a vehicle to get its way on political issues. South China Sea, for example, Tibet, Taiwan, for example, in making sure nobody makes a fuss about the anniversary of the 1989 uh, crackdown in Beijing and other cities and the like. You yeah. know, that's a way of doing that. And that's, once again, not soft power. You know, you get the sense from reading about this in Australia, some people might get the sense that this is, there is, as you were talking about, one person behind the screen pulling the levers. I don't think that's the case. A lot of Chinese business people who are ingratiating themselves into Chinese Australian politics are doing that not just at the direction of the party, 
They're doing that because they know that that's what they should do. They'll get brownie points for this back in China. This could help their business back in China. This could help their standing back in China. It could help protect their families back in China. They know what to do. Mm. They know what the right thing to do is, and they're doing it. Nobody drags them into a room so crudely and says, you go down to Australia and make sure the Australians behave yourself, and here's the playbook. Yeah, It's a bit more diffuse than that. But it sounds almost like that. Uh, there's not much that the Chinese Communist Communist Party needs to do to to keep the whole thing ticking along. The system knows how to work now, and the people are just going to go along and further the cause, quotation fingers. Well, that's through eternal vigilance. Yeah. You know, they don't let up. It's relentless. The system doesn't relax, and that's why the system, I think, has been so successful. It's also why the system can be, isn't always so brutal. But they have to constantly reinforce this to make sure that is done. Okay. So you shot down the the man behind the curtain scenario. But how has Xi Jinping changed things? Because the Chinese Communist Party has evolved to promote him into the position that he is, and he in turn is evolving the party, I suppose. It looks very different from how it was when when your book was published. And now you've got him cracking down on corruption. Uh, So what has he done to the party? And what do you think of him as a leader? I think we mainly think about Xi Jinping as a domestic phenomenon first. He obviously has had a big impact on Chinese foreign policy. But what Xi Jinping has done, I think, has changed the template for governing in China. His predecessors were kind of first amongst equals. It was a collective decision-making procedure done by consensus. And I think Xi Jinping thought that was ineffective. Things didn't get done. Things drifted. There was never a consensus formed. The people were able to sort of go outside of the consensus and build their own fiefdoms and the like, which happened under his predecessors. Xi Jinping has two insights, one of them self-regarding, obviously. He is red royalty. His father was a, you know, at the revolution in Yan'an with Mao Zedong. So he has genuine revolutionary credentials. Mm. Along with that, I think, comes a certain arrogance and sense of right to rule, genuine legitimacy, red royalty. But I think the second thing is that Xi Jinping has looked at effective Chinese Communist Party leaders, effective in a good way and a bad way, Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping. They were authoritarian figures. They cut through to get things done. They weren't leading out by a collective. They were sort of strongman rulers. Now, I... I once would have subscribed to the view that China was too complicated to have a strongman ruler. Well, Xi Jinping has turned all that on its head, and he's emerged as a real strongman ruler. In quite a short amount of time. A short amount of time, and even without having a majority of his own allies on the Politburo. Mm. And he's rapidly consolidated power. And I guess the main instrument of that, which you alluded to, is the anti-corruption campaign. Because remember, this is not a sort of independent Elliot Ness type investigative body. This is the party investigating its own. Xi Jinping put his only ally in the Politburo Standing Committee in charge of the anti-graft body. It's an extra legal body, sits above the government. People who are arrested, they just turn up in your office and say, come with us. Yeah. So it's highly effective. Now, there's two ways of looking at it. People say he's using this to purge the system of his opponents. He would argue he's doing it to purge the system of a corrosive corruption which was undermining the party. Now, obviously, both are true, but it's been highly effective in bringing his enemies to heel, making people listen to him, getting his way, and most importantly, perhaps, in getting popular support. Now, it's not too easy to measure that in China, but 
I think it's generally true that high officials really dislike Xi Jinping because he's such a fearsome dictatorial character, you know, who's threatening to lock them up if they stray from his correct path. Mm. But amongst the public, probably highly popular because they really see him taking on corruption, which is something which they've really hated and felt hard done by. As far as maybe evolving the party and the way it works in the future, do you foresee any future changes? You know, the party was evolving. They had all these systems for how to appoint officials, uh, when people should retire, these sort of evolving institutional mechanisms to get around what has always been a big problem for authoritarian systems, and, and that is having a peaceful successor. And China have done this. China's done this over the past 20 years. Xi Jinping seems to be pushing that aside. I'll stay as long as I want, Mm. not like my predecessors for 10 years. I'll stay as long as I want. I'm not telling you who's coming next, and you'll just do what you say. Now, that looks highly effective in the short term, but I think longer term, there'll be a big backlash against his authoritarian style. I do think China is far too complex to be ruled by one man. And I think at some stage, we don't know when, in what form, how it will come, I think we're going to see a backlash against Xi Jinping himself. Right now, people are powerless to push back against him. There's no rival center of power at the top. But I think in time, that will change. With the way that international politics are now, and especially with the United States becoming more insular and inward focus, do you see there being opportunities for China and for the CCP to maybe flex their muscles on the global stage? Yes, I think the Chinese do see opportunity. They already were before Trump. Trump possibly gives them further opportunity. Trump is a little unpredictable for their liking. A little, yeah. Uh, and so that could be a problem. But I think so far the Chinese are playing it very well. They're not picking fights with Trump. They're flattering him when they see him. But in the meantime, they're pushing their boat out just as they always were. Mm. Uh, they're playing a much smarter game, I think, in in Southeast Asia, particularly the South China Sea, not trying to confront rival countries all the time like the Philippines, but doing things with them. Because in the longer term, if China can manage these issues, they'll probably win. If they sort of have a confrontation, they'll probably lose. And I think they see lots of opportunity for consolidation with the likes of Trump in the White House. Yeah. Researching a a book like this and writing a book like this sounds both difficult and dangerous in some ways for a journalist who's trying to, to work in China and for somebody who's trying to have an active career in there. What was your experience with this book? When I got the idea for the book, I was the bureau chief for the Financial Times. I decided to do the book. I told the Chinese foreign ministry I wanted my visa extended for a year to write a book about how China was governed, which was not untrue, but I you know, I didn't say up front that I wanted to write a book about the Communist Party because that's a little sensitive. That's the first thing. The second thing, I think, when going about it, I really was very low-key about it. I didn't seek interviews with everybody saying, I want to talk to you about how the Communist Party runs China because most people would refuse to see you. So you just take a softly, softly attitude, try and find out little things here and there, and so you can gradually bring them together. That's the second thing. I think the third thing is that it's a sensitive issue. It's not the most sensitive issue. Mm. You know, If I said to the Chinese foreign ministry, I'd like to stay on to write a book about Tibet, they would say, no thanks. So it's issues of sovereignty, Tibet, Taiwan, places like that, the banned um, sort of spiritual uh, meditation group, Falun Gong, there's all, they're the really day-to-day hot-button issues. And so 
what I was writing about was sensitive, but not the most sensitive issue. And that book came out a few years ago, and I have actually never been refused a visa to go back, mm. which I'm happy about. And in fact, I've just completed another book on Sino-Japanese relations, which comes out in September. And uh, the Chinese Foreign Ministry gave me interviews for that book, which is very unusual because they're not giving many interviews to anybody these days. Now, I, I think the reason they did that is because they think the Japanese are the baddies and they've got a good story to tell. Yeah. But I've managed to sort of, you know, walk on the edge of the prison, as they say, and not fall the wrong side. So, so far, so good. Thanks very much for your time today, Richard. Thank you. Terrific. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud, and please leave a review. You can follow Richard McGregor on Twitter. He's at McGregor Richard, and you can follow La Trobe Asia at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.